Harvey Stockwin. Three post-Second World War events, which made the Cold War seem both more real and more intense, came to mind last Sunday, November the 9th, as many across the world remembered and celebrated the fall of the Berlin War on that day in 1989. At a time when fears of a renewed Cold War between NATO nations and Russia in Europe and between the US and China in Asia are being expressed, it is worth remembering just how cold the Cold War actually was. There was a sustained, frigid atmosphere in international relations and a seeming deep-seated hostility between the free world and the Sino-Soviet bloc in both Europe and Asia. As John Steele Gordon recently pointed out in an article 25 years since the Berlin Wall was torn down on the American Enterprise Institute website, quote, We grew up in a bipolar world. There was the West, led by the vibrant, democratic, capitalist United States. And there was the Soviet Union and its satellites, tyrannical, communist and culturally stagnant. Both sides were armed to the teeth with thousands of nuclear weapons that, if used, would destroy civilization. Both sides sought allies in the so-called Third World, most recently independent former colonies of the old European powers. Rivalry between the two sides was intense, but perhaps for fear of setting off Armageddon, the Cold War only became hot when it was fought by proxies in places like Korea and Vietnam. The Cold War was not a momentary crisis, here today and gone tomorrow. It was the conventional wisdom that the bipolar world would continue indefinitely with neither side able to achieve a decisive advantage. It was considered that this was the way the world was and it would have to be managed as it could not be fundamentally changed. Essentially, this sustained frigidity mainly because the communist states and the democracies arose in Europe as a result of arrangements made in the wake of the Second World War. After its final defeat, Germany was divided into four occupation zones, Russia's to the east, the zones of America, France and Britain to the west. While the former capital city was within the Russian occupation zone, Berlin itself was further divided into four sectors, with the American, French and British sectors guaranteed access from Berlin to their occupation zones to the west. The first event which came to mind this week, and had seemed to me at that time to be like a continuation of World War II, began on June the 24th, 1948. Then the Russians sought total control, as communists often do, by blocking the railway, the road, the canal access to the three non-communist sectors in Berlin. Clearly, Moscow was hoping that the Americans, the British and the French would give up and quit Berlin. Instead, the Western Allies quickly organised the Berlin Airlift, as the American, French, British, Canadian, Australian, New Zealand and South African air forces all flew over 200,000 flights in the following 12 months on their two- and four-engine transport aircraft, no jets in those days, to the two airports in the western sectors of Berlin. For many living in Europe at that time, it seemed that the Cold War was teetering on the brink of becoming hot. 
All it required was for one plane to be shot down by Soviet fighters as it flew along a narrow corridor over the Russian zone in East Germany. As the Allied planes flew day and night sorties constantly to bring around 5,000 tons of fuel and food daily to the West Berliners, some of the planes crashed and there were quite a few casualties. By mid-May 1949, the Allied airlift was carrying more cargo into Berlin than had previously come by road and rail. So the Soviet Union decided to lift its blockade. But after the Berlin airlift, the image and the reality of the Cold War was set. There was the West, led by the vibrant democratic capitalist United States. And there was the Soviet Union and its satellites, where the standard of living was much lower and where the rights of individuals were not respected. Crucially, the Soviet hegemony in Eastern Europe was never accepted by the people of those countries, which erupted periodically in revolt. Uprising in East Germany in 1953, Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968 were all brutally suppressed by Soviet tanks. So during the 1950s, East Germany, the Russian occupation zone, was increasingly faced with severe population loss as people voted with their feet using the then easy access between East and West Berlin. By 1961, the state felt it had no choice but to act. With a population of 18 million, the German Democratic Republic had by then seen that 3.5 million people, almost 20% of the population, had escaped to the West. This is precisely why the Berlin Wall went up, sealing off East Berlin from the three Western sectors. The communists called it the anti-fascist protection rampart, but everyone knew that the purpose of the wall was not to keep fascists out, but to keep the workers of a supposed workers' paradise in. It was at best a severe embarrassment. At worst, it showed how communists worked only for the elite party members at the top and not for the proletariat at the bottom, whom communism was supposed to champion. So my second memory which came to mind this week was when, 22 months after the Berlin Wall was erected, this grim Cold War reality was eloquently highlighted in West Berlin by US President John F. Kennedy on June the 26th, 1963, just five months before he was tragically assassinated. Essentially, JFK attached the fate of Berlin to the freedom and democracy which the West was struggling to achieve, emphasizing that Berlin remained the front line in the Cold War. There are many people in the world who really don't understand, or say they don't, what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. Freedom has many difficulties. And democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in, to prevent them from leaving us. All 
free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the word, Ich bin ein Berliner. 24 years go by until another U.S. president delivers some memorable rhetoric in a still-divided Berlin. Kennedy expected the Cold War to endure unless comprehensively negotiated out of existence. Ronald Reagan saw the demolition of the Berlin Wall as a means of hastening the end of the Cold War. Speaking at the Brandenburg Gate, with the wall clearly in view, Reagan challenged Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Two years later, when the Berlin Wall suddenly ceased to exist, it marked a surprisingly joyous ending to a conflict that could have erupted into thermonuclear combat. In the decades since then, many Americans have come to believe that the wall fell thanks to Reagan's intervention. He told the Soviet leaders to tear down the wall, and so, we've been told, they did. This misreading of the fall of the wall is incomplete and dangerous, contributing to the belief that U.S. leaders can shape world events while ignoring complex local realities. In saying this, I'm quoting from a historian of the Berlin Wall, Mary Elise Sarot, who contributed two fascinating articles recently, one to the New York Times on November the 6th and one to the website of Politico on November the 9th, both of which forcefully reminded me that for the last 25 years I have not discovered the precise reasons for the fall of the wall, but just accepted that, well, it happened. Yet Miss Sarat also reminded me of the hard fact that no one in either Washington or Moscow or in West Germany or East Germany or even in East Berlin woke up on the morning of November the 9th, 1989 with the intention of opening the wall. The opening of the Berlin Wall was never planned. It still remained difficult to escape from East Germany. The last killing by a guard at the Berlin Wall occurred in February 1989, the last shooting, a very near miss, in April 1989, and the last death during an escape attempt across the larger East German border took place only ten days earlier. The East German Politburo planned a reform which would hint at making travel easier for East Germans while retaining all previous travel restrictions in the fine print. The announcement of this pseudo-reform at an international press conference televised on the night of November the 9th was completely botched. The bumbling Politburo member conducting the press conference, Gunter Schabowski, while badgered by press questions, read the news release for the very first time while he was actually on air. Much of his reading was garbled, but a few phrases popped out. The trips abroad would be possible for every citizen of East Germany and that they would start right away, immediately. 
Shorn of their context, these phrases mistakenly gave journalists and, more important, thousands of television viewers the clear impression that the Berlin War was now being opened. The Schabowski press conference performance set the stage, but it was not the final scene. The communists hoped the modest travel changes would placate the growing East German resistance movement. Instead, the press conference galvanised it. As thousands of would-be travellers headed for the Berlin Wall, the regime failed to use its authoritarian powers. Ms. Sarot graphically describes how the regime itself began to quack. Quote, one of the regime's most loyal subordinates, a secret police officer, Harold Jaeger, was working at a crucial point in the wall. He repeatedly phoned his superiors with accurate reports of the swelling crowds. They did not trust or believe him, calling him a delusional coward. Insulted, furious and frightened, Jaeger decided to let the crowds through the checkpoint, starting a chain reaction at all the other checkpoints. Jaeger had the authority to open fire on the crowds. Instead, he was the first to open the wall. Miss Sarot also reports another reason why East Germans had the confidence to quickly turn up at the wall in such large numbers, given the fact that only five months earlier, on June the 4th, 1989, the East German communists had seen how their Chinese comrades had ended unrest in China with the Tiananmen Massacre. But the people knew the authorities would back down. A month earlier, on October the 7th, peaceful protesters in Leipzig had turned out in such overwhelming numbers that the security forces had at first planned a Tiananmen-style crackdown. But then, because of the numbers, they had backed off. <laughs>